Thank you. I, if you would just join me for a moment in prayer, I just want to settle my heart, ask God to bless our time together. Father, I thank you that you speak through people. You use people who feel weak and ill-equipped to speak your truth to others. pray that you would strengthen me this morning. I pray for those who came here feeling hopeless will leave full of hope in you. I pray that those who might need encouragement will leave with the encouragement that you give, which is your word is life and truth, Lord. Help us to be infused with that today. Speak through my words, Lord. Pray that we all would be challenged, rebuked, encouraged, and strengthened in our journey of faith. I ask this in your name. So this morning, we're continuing in our Proverbs series, which is called Wisdom for Life. We've spoken about a variety of topics, right, about our hearts. We've spoken about finances. We've spoken about the words that we use. Today, we are going to be speaking about what is our driving force in life. Basically, why do we do what we do? Before we start, though, I want to start with a brief illustration uh, many of you know that my daughters, Joy and Grace, recently graduated from college. Yes, thank the Lord. Um, so the last couple of months have been very full with job searching and resumes and interviews and things like that. And we have tried our best as parents to prepare Joy in particular for job interviews. And, and you try and anticipate, what are they going to ask you, right? And one of the common questions that people ask is actually a very open-ended question. And they might ask you, what motivates you? So this could be an example of an interview, right? So it's intentionally broad and open-ended. The interviewer is trying to determine, well, what makes you tick? What drives you to succeed? And does your motivation fit with this job that you are applying for? Well, when it comes to our faith and spiritual life, this is also a very important question to ask. Today, we want to ask ourselves, what is our driving force in life? In other words, what are we living for? What motivates our choices and decisions? And how do we define success? I think we all would agree. Everybody wants to have purpose and meaning in life, right? We all want to know that our lives make a difference, a positive difference. We don't want our lives to be lived in vain without purpose. So the word vain comes from the word vanity, which is the noun of vain. And in Hebrew, the word vain means vapor or breath. It means like a puff of smoke. Here one second and then disappears. There are some synonyms for the word vain. And these include empty, pointless, futile, unsatisfying, and unsuccessful. So the paradox is sometimes the more we do, the more we try to bring meaning to our life, the emptier we can feel because God's just not in it and our efforts just feel like they're in vain, like they're just spinning. Where are they going, God? And this leads us to our key verse today, which, of course, is from the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 16.3, and I'm using the New Living Translation, says, Commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Other versions used for actions will say, commit your plans to the Lord and your plans will succeed. But let's back up a verse. What is the verse that comes before that? In Proverbs 16:2, it says, people may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. So before talking about our plans succeeding, it talks about, well, what are our motives for our plans? 
So God looks way deeper than our actions and our efforts. He examines the motives behind them. And he knows what motivates us. Even if sometimes we're confused motivates us, God knows what motivates us. He knows what drives us. So we all want our personal plans to succeed, right? That's why we make plans. We want them to be successful. But what does it take to succeed? So let's look a little deeper into this meaning of the word commit. Because it says that's what our duty is to commit our plans to the Lord. Very interesting. The word commit in Hebrew actually means to roll onto. Isn't that interesting? It's the idea that we completely give something over to God in dependence upon him. When we commit our work or our actions or our plans to him, we offer everything we do completely to him. So it's basically taking our plans, like the illustration has, and kind of like pushing it, like hands off now, God. This is my plans. These are my actions. This is what I want to do. I'm pushing it to you, God. It's releasing our plans to him. And in, in this uh, verse, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed, it's a conditional statement. That means in order for our plans to succeed, which is the second part, the first part has to be true, which is we commit our plans to the Lord. And that is how we can find success. So we're going to talk about some three key points about how we can test what our motivation is and how our plans can be used in God's kingdom. The first one, which I think is probably the most important one, the one I most struggle with is accept the work assignments God has given to us. We are all called to work, right? It's part of living. We have all been given assignments that God has us do for his glory. Now, we often think of work as, oh, that's just the result of sin. I have to work, right? But that's just not true. Our call to work is not the result of the fall. Rather, it came before the fall. Our call to work is how God created us in his image. The call to work was given before Adam and Eve fell into sin. Now, we, the Bible says we've all been made in the image of God. We are distinct from the rest of creation, right? We have a much higher calling than the animals or the trees or any other part of creation. So we have to say if God is a working God and Adam was made in God's image, then Adam was supposed to also work. Now, God is always at work, right? He's ruling. <laughs> He's Lord of the whole universe. He's ruling. He is answering prayer at every moment of every day. He is busy opening the hearts of people to the gospel. He's comforting the brokenhearted. I could go on for the whole rest of my time here, all the things that God is active doing. He is not a passive God working from afar, but he is intricately involved in the lives of his people. So again, if God is a working God and Adam is made in his image, Adam must also work. And the first task noted in scripture is actually is a work assignment. Adam was told to name the animals, right? It was, this was his assignment before the fall. So we see that work was before the fall. So it's interesting. I don't have time to read this, but if you look in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, it switches from Adam is supposed to work to plural. Five different times it went from, it went from Adam, he, to they. They must rule. They must do these things. So that includes us. So all of Adam's descendants, we are the they. We are called to work by God. And this call to work has never been rescinded. It's not been taken away. Our fall into sin did not remove that from our life. That is God's call to us. One commentator puts it this way. It is glaringly foundational 
that everything else in Scripture is built upon it. We are called to do the work that we were called to do. And that's interesting because uh, the Bible has a lot of passages about being idle and being lazy and how that's a sin. And you might think that that sounds like a more of a cultural thing, but it goes back to this idea that we were called to work. When we work diligently, we're honoring the Lord. So getting back to point number one, you know, that we must accept the work assignments God has given to us, I purposely chose the word assignment. One definition of assignment is this. It's a specified task or amount of work assigned or undertaken as if assigned by authority. So we need to trust that God is our authority, trust his wisdom in the assignments that he has given us to do to build his kingdom. Listen to what well, one pastor said about this. It is important that we recognize the sovereignty of God in placing us right where we are today. You are not at your job today, whether it be in the office, at home, working with your children, or outdoors, by accident. You have been placed there by God to bring him glory and to provide for your needs. In a sense, he has called you to that exact place. It does not mean that you can't seek other jobs, but for today, you are right where God has placed you. You work where you are at today for the kingdom of God. That means there are no small occupations. Each job that is being accomplished right now, collecting garbage, changing diapers, negotiating deals, selling something, doesn't matter, is a job that God found important enough to place one of his children at. He desires for his kingdom to be represented and advanced in that place today, where you are today. Now, a reference that there is no small occupation, that's actually a quote from Martin Luther. He says, uh, one of his writings, there are no small options. What that means is everything you do, whether you're at the office, at the store, at, on the field, at home, wherever God calls you, that is working for the Lord, and we are to do that with the mindset of serving the Lord. Interesting side note. Have any you guys ever hear of the uh, term the Protestant work ethic? Have you guys heard that? The Protestant work ethic. Well, one message of the Protestant Reformation was that the pastor was not the only one called to do God's work. Even Martin Luther wrote, even the blacksmith, the farmer, the baker, the housewife, they're also called to do the work that God has set before them. So now that we've established that work is God-given and good, why is it so hard, right? We struggle to accept the work assignments God gives us. We know how hard they can be. So what the Bible teaches as well is, yes, work preceded the fall, but because of the fall into sin, work is, um, for, work is, work is given by God before the, the fall, but toiling in our labor is part of the curse. That means because of the fall, our work now becomes much harder. So part of accepting our work assignments from God includes the knowledge that our work, unfortunately, has been affected by sin that entered the world. That means our work can be toilsome. What does that mean? That's kind of an old-fashioned word. That means our work can be full of pain and hardship, sorrow, even back-breaking sweat. There will always be difficulties in our work all the days of our lives, as Solomon says, and it will serve as a reminder of mankind's original sin. Let me say something else that might seem a little depressing, but it's important to know. There is no easy job anywhere. There are no easy jobs anywhere. And why is that? Because, like everything else in this world, work has been impacted by the fall. 
So there are no easy jobs anywhere. So I like to reference a, a sermon I listened to by Stephen Lawson called Working as for the Lord. And he, he points out a few things from the book of Ecclesiastes that really tie in with this well. And again, Solomon likely wrote Proverbs 16, 3, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. And he likely wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, starts off by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the pre preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, Solomon's like, what is the point of working? It's all empty. It's pointless. There's no real value. It's purposeless. It's profitless. He goes on, Ecclesiastes 1, 8 and 9. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, work is an endless routine. It's wearisome. It's grueling. The same old, same old. Let's skip to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 2.18, Solomon writes, I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun. In other words, Solomon's saying, for all my toil and all my trouble, I found zero pleasure in my work. I found no purpose in it. So in Ecclesiastes 2.20, he writes, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor in the sun. Is anyone else feeling despair? <laughs> in despair right now? I feel so bleak, right? And he felt hopeless. But he doesn't end there. Just a few verses later, Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25, Solomon reached a key turning point in how he views his work. He writes, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So at the end of his life, he actually concludes there is nothing better than to live and to work and to tell himself that his labor is good. So we have to say, what causes shift in person? He, he just said that work was grievous, and now he's saying it's good. He said work was painful, and now he's saying it's actually pleasurable. What happened? Well, if you look back at this verse, look at that little phrase, because he saw that it was from the hand, oh, from the hand of God. So he recognized, wait a minute. God was the one who put this assignment in my life. In Solomon's case, it was being king of Israel. That sounds like a pretty heavy work assignment, right? In my case, it's being a stay-at-home mom supporting my kids and my husband. So what is it for you? What is from the hand of God in your life? I don't, if we don't see our assignments as coming from God, we're going to end up as a very frustrated person we're going to have a heart that's filled with discontentment and complaints. But if we see our assignments as coming from God, we can experience great enjoyment. We can have a God-fearing, humble heart attitude and accept them as coming from God's hand. So let's continue on. At the end of verse 25, Solomon asks an important question. He says, "Who, uh, without him, without God, who can eat and find enjoyment? So it's a rhetorical question. There's an obvious answer. The answer is, there's no enjoyment 
independent of God. There's no enjoyment independent of the one who has signed it. So until we realize that this is God's will in our life, we are not going to have enjoyment in our work. It, it, it immediately reminded me of a story from the New Testament. So Jesus was having a lot of people follow after him. He was very popular. He was teaching. He was doing miracles. But all of a sudden, his teachings got harder and harder, and people were starting to fall away. And Jesus asked Peter, one of the disciples, he said, Peter, are you going to leave me too? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's like, where else can we go, Lord? You're the only one who speaks truth. Related to our topic today, a parallel question similar to what Solomon asked is, for whom else could we work? Only you bring meaning out of our work. It's the same sort of idea. So when I speak about work, I want to be clear, I'm not just speaking about a paid position. I do not have a paid position. I know I work very hard. So I'm talking about any kind of work we do, whether we're paid for it or not. And I think everyone who has a job here can testify when they come home, their work is not done, right? It just feels wearisome. It goes on and on, right? And also, someday we may retire from our paid positions, right? But our work for the Lord never ends. We should never retire from the assignments that God has given us. So sometimes rather than joyfully accepting our assignments from God, we might envy or idealize the assignments of other people, right? And that makes us dissatisfied then with our assignments. And to be completely honest with you, this is where I, I struggle sometimes. That sometimes I look at other people's lives and I'm like, ooh, I love that work assignment. Why can't I do that, God? What I'm doing right now is just too hard. And what I do is I compare my hard, somewhat private stuff with their public, easygoing, trouble-free appearance of what they're doing. Now, it could be true that their lives are a lot easier, or it could be just an illusion, but the, the bottom line is I need to not fall into that faulty thinking, right? That I need to accept not begrudgingly, but joyfully the very place that God has called me to work in my life right now. Here's an admonition I would like to read that, um, that we all should heed. And this one lady, Lisa Da Silva, wrote, um, we need to be very mindful that laboring for the Lord means serving who we love rather than doing what we love. Simply doing what we love can lead to selfish ambition and temporary gain. But when we focus on who we are serving, we are living a life of eternal purpose, which is abundantly more satisfying. So let me rephrase this idea from that quote. Basically, when we have the mindset that we're working for the Lord, the key question to ask ourselves is, whom am I serving? Whether, we whether or not we love what we do is much, much less important. And I think part of our dissatisfaction with our assignments actually comes from our culture, because our culture says, follow your passions, right? Do what you're passionate about. And if you do, everything's going to be wonderful. And that's just not true. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong. If you find a job you love, that's amazing, right? Sometimes our passions and God's assignments can overlap. But even if we find a job we truly love, going back to what I said earlier, there are no easy jobs. There will still be hardship and toilsome labor in the midst of that. And we are still sinful people living in this broken world. I'd like to give a few examples of people in the Bible. They were faithful disciples of God who never 
in their right mind would have chosen the extremely hard assignments God gave them. Okay? But they did, and they, you will see that they ended up being according to God's will. So one example, Moses. He led the Israelites literally until the day he died in the wilderness. Right? Caleb, one of, Caleb and Joshua, the two oldest of the spies who were actually able to go into the promised land, he was 85 years old when he went in to conquer the promised land, and he had the hardest part of the promised land to oversee and conquer. The apostle John, the only disciple who was not martyred for his faith, he wrote various portions of the New Testament while he was on a, prison, a prisoner in exile on this, this deserted island in the Mediterranean Sea. So you see that all these biblical examples lead us actually to our second point, which is we need to give ourselves fully, fully to the world God has assigned to us. So again, let's go back to our key verse. Commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Well, the parallel verse in the New Testament that highlights the same idea is in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So as you're probably taught, when you see the word therefore, you're like, okay, what is therefore, therefore? So if you look back, this, is, this verse I just read from 1 Corinthians, that's the last verse in the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. And the whole chapter talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul makes this whole argument saying, look, some of you are saying that Jesus never really rose from the dead and that it didn't really matter whether or not he rose from the dead. And Paul was like, no, it is essential, it is critical that Jesus rose from the dead. It is of the utmost importance because he never, if he never rose from the dead, our faith is in vain. It's completely empty and worthless. Why do anything? Why work for any, for, do our work assignments for God who is dead? He said, it is critical that you know that Jesus rose from the dead, that he achieved a great victory over death, and therefore, therefore our work is not in vain. So let's read that verse again. Therefore, since Christ did achieve the ultimate victory by rising from the dead, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we have to ask from this verse, how can we know that our plans will succeed? How can we fully give ourselves to the work assignments God has given us? Well, the first point from this verse says that we are to stand firm in our faith and be immovable. That means we should not be unshakable, not blown around by our circumstances, deeply rooted in our faith. So when life is hard and our work assignments just seem too much for us to bear, we need to stand strong in our faith, be committed to embracing the assignments that God has given us to do, no matter how hard they are. Our commitment to, to following God's will in our work should not change with our circumstances. Point two, this verse also says to not hold anything back. It says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. It doesn't say half-hearted. Give yourselves fully to the work God has given you to do. I love the ESV translation. It says, abound in the work of the Lord. And this is not just for professional Christian workers, right? We are all commanded to do everything we do in the name of the Lord. We are to be overflowing in the work of the Lord. Colossians 3 makes this point. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for your human masters, 
since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So in modern day terms, I would say, you don't work for your boss. That's such a shallow worldview. Even if the boss owns the entire company, he's just middle management. God is the boss, right? There's a psalmist who says, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the fullness of the earth is his. He is the king of kings. He is the boss of bosses. And we are ultimately serving him. So we need to keep this higher spiritual perspective. So going back to what I said earlier, there are no small occupations. Sometimes we will do some specific, easily identifiable works for God, right? We might teach in Sunday school. We might pray for someone. We might make a meal for a family. We might give a generous donation. But most of the time, we're living in the mundane, ordinary aspects of life. And even then, we can still be working for the Lord. So let me give a few kind of prayers that give an example of what they might look like in your life. Jesus, I'm loving you as I head to the office for yet another day and thanking you for your financial provisions. Jesus, give me joy as I change another dirty diaper, thanking you for this child who is such a gift. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity for good education. Help me to use my God-given intellect for your glory. Jesus, as I do another load of laundry, I'm so thankful for the load of sin that you forgave and removed from my life. Jesus, as I go to another work meeting, help me to represent you well to my work colleagues and show you that I care about them. Jesus, as I make arrangements to get my car repaired, help me to remember how everything in your kingdom will never perish, spoil, or fade. These are just simple examples of how God's spirit can infuse everything we do with a Christ-like attitude. Third point, going back to our verse. So how can we succeed in our plans? By knowing something. I love this. We can know that our labor in God is never in vain. So those who don't trust in the Lord, they never really know. Is what I'm doing, is of any ultimate purpose? But the Bible says we can know. We can know in advance that what we do, even if we don't see it, it has meaning and is not in vain. That when we commit our actions to, our, to the Lord, our plans will succeed according to God's definition. So this takes us back to well, what is the true definition of success then? Because I believe we as followers of Christ have a very different definition of success. So our definition of success is God using our humble, God-focused efforts to accomplish what he purposes. Rob, can you advance the slide? Thank you. So again, the true definition of success is God using our humble, God-focused efforts to accomplish what he purposes. So in the end, we can trust God to have our backs, is how I would put it. He's not going to give us um, good works to do that are completely empty and produce nothing of value, right? He's not going to call you to do something that produces nothing of value. Our work assignments are not in vain. They will succeed because they are God's plans. And even though work has been impacted by the fall, like I said earlier, there is still great blessing in accepting our work assignments and fully giving ourselves to them. We as believers, of course, we have eternal blessings to look forward to, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But there are also temporal blessings, things we can experience right now when we follow the Lord. He can grant us grace when we humbly accept the work assignments he's given us. He can grant us joy and happiness when we serve him. 
He can instill in us a godly sense of satisfaction and contentment with what we are called to do. And we can also experience being blessed that we are able to focus on serving others as God meets our needs. What a blessing it is to be able to pour that out onto others. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And God will refresh you as you pour yourself out on behalf of others. So let's not be like the world who considers work to be a drudgery to be endured, right? Oh, go, go to work. And sometimes we can be that way ourselves, right? They, they endure work. They hate work. Let's not be people who can't wait to do nothing but retire and please ourselves. But let's be people ready to serve God with a ready, cheerful heart. So going back to we all want our lives to have meaning. We want our efforts to make a difference, right? Well, here's the difference between what a person who doesn't follow Christ says and what a true follower of Christ says. So the world says, to build your legacy, you need to make a name for yourself, right? Go out there and make a name for yourself. Build something that will last beyond your time on earth. But a true follower of Jesus says something very different. They want to make a name for God, not themselves. They want to elevate the name of Jesus, right? and take attention away from themselves. And a true follower is motivated like John the Baptist was. So this, this uh, verse I have up here is a verse from John the Baptist who said, he must become greater, I must become less. So we, we have to remember that it, our job is to point to God, it's not to build a name for ourselves. I think we all have a desire to be remembered after we leave the earth, don't we? Like when we pass away, we want people to remember us fondly, remember the things that we do. But I read something really, and uh, sorry to dump another depressing thought on you, <laughs> but it was a website I found that said most people are completely forgotten after three generations. And that's kind of sad. <laughs> I felt kind of sad when I read that. And they quote, they say, I have no knowledge of my great-grandparents or all the generations before them. I don't, not about their accomplishments or failures, their personalities, or the love they had in their hearts. It is as if they never existed. And the same will happen to us all. Wow. Talk about a deep thought there. Even for people who can trace their ancestry back very far, some people, like some Americans, say, oh, my ancestor was on the Mayflower, right? They can go all the way back that far. They still don't really know what their ancestors were like. But thank God that our value is not dependent on the memory of others, right? Our value is given to us by God. He is the one who brings meaning out of our work, out of our life, while we live on this planet Earth. So let's not be so concerned with building our personal legacy. Instead, let's be encouraged and challenged by what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, which is ironically what Brian read earlier. So Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your what? See your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. So we are the ones who are called to do the good works, the assignments that God has given us. Why? So it would glorify God. It would point to God. Therefore, our work is not in vain, and our plans are successful if they point to God and not us. We are to make a name of God and not of ourselves. This should be our driving force in life. I'm reminded of a song, a somewhat recent song, by a, a Christian group called Casting Crowns, and they have this song called Only Jesus. So if you're like on Spotify, want to jot this note down, 
You might want to add it to your playlist, but it speaks exactly to the topic I'm talking of today. I'm just going to quote a few of those lyrics here. So it says, make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else, make a name the world remembers. But all in an empty world, but all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. And then the chorus is, and I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. So if we truly work for the Lord, we won't require human glory or appreciation for the things we do or approval, as nice as those things are. God desires that he would be recognizable in us in all that we do. So that brings me to my final point. So first, we accept the assignments God has given us, and then we give ourselves fully to those assignments. Third is rest. Rest in the knowledge that our work counts for eternity. I came across such an interesting verse. I've read it many times, but there's part that really jumped off the page at me. So in Revelation 14, 13, again, Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and it speaks about our future. And it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Isn't that really interesting? It doesn't say their deeds go before them as if our deeds get us into heaven. It says their deeds will follow them. It says that our works for God done on earth count for eternity. Our works for the Lord mean something when we enter into God's presence. It just gives us a much higher view of the things we do for the Lord. And touching on that, um, going back to Matthew 25, that Jesus gave this parable of the sheep and the goats. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read the part specifically for those of us who follow Christ. So here it starts, Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the answer was from the believers. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When, did you did, when do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So every act done in God's name with a humble heart really does matter for eternity. Therefore, we should not diminish the significance of our work. And I have a challenge for you today, and I'm challenging myself. Try not to use the word just, J-U-S-T, just. So don't say, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a school teacher. I'm just a student, okay? We need to remember that everyone is significant. God has given everyone a significant work to do, and he has placed you in that place for a reason. So the bottom line is everything we do can be done for God's glory and count for eternity. No work surrendered to God's purposes and done for his glory is ever in vain. So we have probably all heard the expression, maybe you do this when you give out a punishment for your kids, you reap what you sow, right? Has anyone said that as a parent? I have said that. 
And obviously that comes out in a very negative way, okay? You did this, you're now reaping what you're sowing. But let me read something on the more positive side about reaping what we sow. In Galatians 6, 7 to 10, it says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever sows, whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, I would hope that would be us, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, if we, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So here we see the positive side of that, reaping what we sow. So why should we not become weary in doing good? Why should we accept our work assignments and abound in the work of the Lord? Because this verse says, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. That proper time may be during our lifetime, or it may not be till eternity. And this is the whole point of what Jesus said to the crowd in Luke 14. Jesus said, um, this, Jesus was teaching, and he said, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Listen to this part. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So sometimes the works we do for God, they may have an immediate payout. There may be a clear result. There may be something positive that comes out of it. But it also may be that people may not see it. They may not appreciate it. They may not respond in any meaningful way. In fact, they may even mock us or deride us for our works for the Lord. So when we talk about our labor for the Lord not being in vain, we need to remember that the reward for our faithful service to God may not happen during our lives on earth. The reward may be treasures that are laid up in heaven. There is a phrase that says, why wheel the wheels of a car that is just about to go off a cliff at any time? Have you guys ever heard that expression? Why bother fixing the wheels of a car if it's just going to go off the cliff? As Christians, we might be discouraged by the state of this world. I know I feel this way sometimes. You might conclude, like, is it really worth the effort to do anything good in this world? This is a fallen and broken world. How, what, what can I really do that would make any impact? But the answer to the question, you know, why oil the wheels of a car that's just going off a cliff, is that when we work against injustice, when we strive to care for the world that God's created, when we work toward reconciliation between people, these are all signs of, of the new creation. It gives glimpses into what heaven is going to be like, and it points to Jesus, how Jesus is the source of those good things. So what we do as new creation people in the present will last and have meaning in God's future. So I'd like to give this final illustration. Um, it's from N.T. Wright. And he said, think of a stone, a master stonemason. So a stonemason um, is someone who, who gets stone and they carve it. And he tells a junior stonemason, he gives him a block of rock, and he said, I want you to carve it in such and such a way. And this stone, I want you to do it differently. I want you to carve it this way, right? So on and so forth. So the stonemason, the junior stonemason, he does what he's told by the master, not realizing what's going to happen with these rocks. Then one day, the master stonemason oversees the construction of a beautiful cathedral. He incorporates all those stones that the different junior stonemasons have prepared in advance, at the cathedral's completion, the junior stonemason looks up, sees the stones that he carved. He gets excited. Oh my gosh, look up there. That's the stone that I carved. 
look over there, that's the other stone that I carved. At the time when he carved those stones, they were isolated bits of effort. He didn't see the point or purpose in them. But then one day he sees how the master stonemason used them in a grand and glorious way. And he was humbly grateful for the opportunity to be part of something way bigger than himself, much grander than anything he could have done on his own. So N.T. Wright relates this to how we approach our work assignments from God. He says, the spirit indwells us in the present, producing the work that we are called to do. That same spirit that helped us do those works holds onto us and the work that we have already done so that all of that will be part of the glorious new future in God's world. So in other words, nothing we do in the present is wasted. It is not worthless. Our task is to be faithful and overflowing with good works. So going back to the, the original verse from this point, Revelation 14, 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the spirit, they will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. So this verse shows that there is continuity between the work we do for the Lord on, on earth and in heaven. Sometimes God gives us glimpses of what the, the, the continuity is, but more often than not, we don't really know what impact our works on earth have. But we do know, remember we said earlier, we can know that our work is never in vain and has eternal value. So to wrap up, let's just review these final points. It all starts with the first step. We need to accept the assignments God has given to you and to me. And don't be tempted to compare your assignments. Don't begrudge other people their assignments. But trust that God knows what he's doing in your life. Second, if you do accept assignments from God, then you can be energized for step two, which is to give yourselves fully to the work that he has called you to do. And then third, once you do this, you can rest. After you know, giving each day to the Lord, you can rest in the knowledge that our work truly does count here on earth as well as in eternity for God's eternal purposes. So this should be our driving force in life. And our two key verses, one more time, are Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. And the parallel New Testament verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So remember that we don't have to strive to do great things for God. We just need to be open vessels in which God can work. And God is in every detail of our lives. A final quote, a recurring theme in the Bible is that it is a task of God's servants to be faithful in small things. And then to trust a wise father to assemble all the little matters into the accomplishment of his global purpose. I'd like to end with a charge, which is going, coming um, from Psalm 90, which is attributed to Moses. And here Moses talks about the brevity of life how short our time on earth really is. So let's listen to these verses with the seriousness that is called for and commit ourselves to the Lord's work. So verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then he ends the psalm by saying, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.